Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artists' relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Sheff. My guest today is Erin Kronikin. Erin is a stage four breast cancer patient whose career as a professional actor, producer, and career coach has spanned the last 25 years in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Diego. She has appeared in major feature films and on television and has toured nationally and appeared off-Broadway with several plays and musicals. She is currently the executive artistic director of the Seeing Place Theater in New York City. I was introduced to Erin and her comedic brilliance on the set of a short film 10 years ago, and I've been following her artistic journey ever since. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You make me sound like really good with that bio. (laughs) Thank you. I need to take you around with me all the time. (laughs) Um, So tell us a little bit about your background as an artist and your experience with anxiety. Oh boy, because they go hand in hand. Um, Let's see. I would probably say that my time as an artist started at the same time my anxiety started when I was nine years old. Um, I was very young. uh, And I found that uh, I was really good at memorizing movies. And so um, our local youth theater had auditions for a production of Charlotte's Web. And I was like, I can do that and auditioned and got in. And that started my lifelong obsession with performance. Um, I have my degree from Pepperdine University, where I got my bachelor's in uh, theater with an acting emphasis. Um, And I grew up in San Diego, went to school in Los Angeles, uh, then worked on the West Coast quite a bit before moving to New York City in 2005. And I've been working pretty steadily here ever since. Great. Um, so you said that your your anxiety started sort of when your um, your career as an artist started. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, it's sort of something that I think about in retrospect. I've been in therapy now for quite a while, and um, you know, looking back, I'm started to piece things together and notice that I was a very anxious child and I had no idea until I was well into adulthood because my anxiety presents as energy um, and passion and that's so who knows what came first the anxiety or the ability to have this passion but I certainly used it to my advantage for a very long time Um, and didn't really notice how much of a negative impact it had on my life um, until I got sick so um, and started going to therapy and started addressing it. Great. So you, when were you, you were diagnosed with stage four in November? In November of 2018. It was when it was, uh, when I got re-diagnosed as stage four. I was originally stage two, um, and, and I got that diagnosis in May of 2015. So I had been cancer free for about two and a half, almost three years. Okay. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, that journey and what you discovered about anxiety and depression through that? Um, so being some, when you're diagnosed with cancer, um, particularly if it's breast cancer, um, there are, it's, so you have your initial cancer and they give you whatever treatments that you need to have in order to get better. And the idea is to cure you. Um, and I 
was of course, hoping for the best. I had chemo, I had surgery, I had radiation. And then after you are declared cancer-free, you're not cured yet because there's a five-year window where cancer likes to come back. And so you just continue getting um, exams and you you see your doctor every three months and uh, hope that it doesn't come back. And unfortunately, in my case, it did. Um, so, so the reason I ended up going to therapy, well, there were two reasons. Uh, one, I was, uh, so anxious every time these three month checkups would come up. I was so scared that I was going to be declared, okay, you have cancer again. Um, and it was getting to a point where my doctor was getting irritated and I realized that, you know, he's not equipped to deal with anxious people. He's equipped to deal with cancer. So (laughs) I started going to therapy. Um, and one would also say that you're completely justified in that anxiety. He's wonderful. Um, he is a cancer survivor as well. So he's like, I know what this feels like. I can also tell you that only time will make you feel better. And if it doesn't, and it sounds like it's not, seeing somebody will really make a difference. Um, at the same time, right around the time that I was finishing up my full course of treatment back in 2016, my mother was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And that's when I was like, all right, yeah, I'm done. Okay, I need help. <laughs> and I went to therapy because I thought, you know, there's this story out there, which is, as I, as it turns out, it's not true, that if you keep a positive attitude, you, you, um, your chances of survival are much greater. And conversely, if you do not have a good attitude or you're stressed out, you can make the cancer come back. Um, hmm. So... I voiced that concern to this new therapist, and one of the first things they told me after I told my story was like, just so you know, you can't give yourself cancer by being stressed. Uh, Cortisol is not good in your body, of course, but that in itself does not cause cancer. So we'll deal with the underlying reasons for your anxieties, but just know you're going to be fine related to the anxiety. Um, and then I, it became clear based on the things that I was talking about in my sessions that medication might be a good avenue for me. Um, so I, and I was more than willing to do it because I didn't like how I was feeling and it was really getting in the way of me having, um, just any sort of quality of life really, because all I just the worry about dying was just spinning in my head all the time. And interestingly, when I started taking my, uh, the anxiety medication I was taking, well, two things happened that were interesting. One, I started to notice my behavior changing in areas I had no idea were related to anxiety. So, uh, one small silly thing was like, I wasn't nagging my boyfriend as much. (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't know that was coming from me being anxious that I would have a a shorter fuse or maybe be a little more irritable. Um, but that just magically, my point of view sort of changed. Um, so that was, that was one thing. And that's when I started to, 
uncover with my therapist how long I had been experiencing anxiety and how it was showing itself in everyday life. Um, another thing that I noticed uh, was I became very depressed when I started taking the anti-anxiety medication, uh, which was mm-hmm. baffling to me. And uh, my therapist uh, said, okay, well, I went back to my psychiatrist, a separate person. And she said, um, that's not uncommon because when you deal with anxiety, um, oftentimes, I mean, depression is closely linked, but sometimes the medication, even though this medication I'm on is supposed to deal with both, sometimes it takes care of one and not the other. So what had happened for me was anxiety was gone and it just showed me that I had um, depression underneath it. And Mm -hmm. so they put me on a second medication that was meant to boost the medication I was already on. And then I didn't experience that depression anymore. Um, So, so the result for me has been noticing how anxiety has contributed to my um, workaholicness because again, it manifests in me like energy. Like uh, I, I notice something I don't like or I don't want and I just take action immediately and I overload myself completely and I'm always seeking um, new and innovative ways to handle things and um, because I just don't like stress. So I manage it with, um, with this anxiety. So having now been on medication, I've had to relearn how do I do things um, now that I don't have this sort of weird anxiety hanging over my head. You've been very open about your emotions and your feelings in your blog throughout this whole cancer journey. Have you found that that has also been helpful, like writing out your experiences? Has that served as a way to sort of lessen some of that? It really has. I guess. It really has because I have a lot of social anxiety and it stems from my worry that what I say and do is first not going to be very well received and second that it's never going to be enough to make people happy. So uh, by writing in a blog, I'm able to block out what I think people are going to say or do because I'm just writing a story and then I can hit, you know, post and then walk away from it. Um, and people can read it or not read it. Some people are subscribed. I'll usually post it on social media at that point, but I don't, I don't feel as anxious about it. If I were to put it on social media as a Facebook post, for example, and try to write the same thing, the anxiety would be way too, way too much for me. So, uh, so the blog helps me feel like I'm telling my story, um, in a controlled sort of way. And it also allows me to update a lot of people in a very short amount of time so that people know what's going on with me. And I don't have to say the same thing over and over again. Right. That can be exhausting and, and counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. Um, So you also work as a career and life coach. Can you talk a little bit about that work and how that work uh, might help an artist that's dealing with anxiety? Absolutely. So um, I, my background before, uh, a long time, right right out of 
college was in um, the sales and customer service departments of a national advertising publication. So I was learning marketing, advertising, sales, and customer service through this idea of um, this publication. And my job there was to um, either teach uh, customers how to use our publication to advertise what they were selling, um, or when I was in management, teach our employees how they can teach other people to do that. And I started to notice that I was using the same skill set there as I was in my own acting career. And I also noticed that that um, understanding of how business works and how advertising works and how marketing works made me less anxious about the acting industry. That when I got together with friends, uh, I noticed my response to rejection was different than, than them. And uh, I started... Uh, just doing kind of little bits of coaching um, because people would come to me noticing I had tools that they didn't have. And I started to think, well, maybe there's a business here. Maybe I can take what I've learned and start to share um, and, and structure it in a way that is um, fun. Uh, but also you feel like you have someone on your side who can talk you through some of the more difficult areas of the business, because even if an actor or, you know, I've worked with directors, I've worked with different kinds of um, theater and film professionals. Um, even if you understand some of the business, it's still nice to have a person to bounce ideas off of and know that you're not alone or know that you're on the right path. And there's tons that you can learn online. And there are wonderful courses that you can take with people where you download the video and you watch the video, but it, there's no one size fits all approach to marketing yourself as an artist. Uh, so what, what I do is I fill in the gaps for people, take whatever learning that they might've had and kind of synthesize it. So it's individualized to that person and their specific situation. Right. Can you um, just maybe differentiate the work that you do um, from the work that a therapist does? Absolutely. Um, so I'm not licensed. Um, there's no schooling that I have to go to um, to do this kind of work. If I were doing life coaching outside of theater, um, then I would get a certification that would teach me a lot of different ways to um, to work in industries where I don't have any knowledge and I'm only coming from the coaching perspective. My coaching is kind of a blend of coaching and mentoring. So the distinction there, coaches will never tell you what to do, but they'll guide you through a series of um, exercises to uh, figure out what your needs are and how they can be met. And then a mentor is somebody from within the industry you're working in that can give you real world advice about exactly what to do and how to do it. And I blend those two things together. And um, so I think life coaching is a little closer to therapy. Um, I don't work with people and try to uncover past trauma. Um, I'm not in the business to tell someone whether or not they're talented enough to do what they're doing. My job is to give them the business skills that they need 
in order to run their business like a business. And that is it. It's very broad. Uh, and people do come to me and need to talk through some of the ways that rejection um, impacts them. But I always approach it from the perspective of, okay, what are you trying to do and what's standing in your way? And what tools can we use to try to get past that? Um, and so it's really, again, focused on the business as opposed to their, uh, and their, and yes, a business mindset as well. Um, but there's no, uh, there's no therapy per se. Although of course I always have tissues available and when it's non COVID time, um, also coffee and tea so that people feel really comfortable and just can kind of relax into the coaching. Right. Coming up, managing anxiety in a leadership position. So you are the artistic director of the Scene Place Theater Company, which mm -hmm. is a company you founded. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, first, the work that your company does, and then sort of the, the anxiety that goes along with being in charge? Oh my gosh, that's it's loaded, Allison. It's loaded. <laughs> um, so our theater company, I'm the co-founder. Um, it was the brainchild of Brandon Walker, um, whom we are friends from back home in San Diego. And then um, we he met up with me again upon his moving to New York. And after seeing the kind of work that was available to us on a day-to-day -day basis in New York, we discovered that there was something missing. Um, and we wanted to, first we did some research to see is it, does it exist? And we're just missing it. Uh, and ultimately it wasn't available to us. So we realized that we really need to find it um, ourselves. So what was missing for us was ensemble driven theater. So theater that is focused on the ensemble um, and that is actor centric. So it really allows the actors to have a say in how the work goes and how work gets created. Um, so almost taking the way we work in a classroom uh, with the actor being asked questions and um, encouraged to develop a character based on their impulses or their own life and actually bringing that into the rehearsal room. And that is not what we find in New York City for the most part, um, which is very commercialized. And uh, the more commercialized it becomes, the more cookie cutter it feels. So we set out to create a company that was a, an artist base. That's a place where um, people could, that people can make their artistic home. And we specialize in doing um mostly uh, published texts or adaptations of old texts or uh, books or poetry or um, just, or other stories that have already been written and then reinterpreting them for a modern audience. And we've been doing that for 10 years. It's really exciting. Um, as a producer, I get to look at the world around me and I, with my co-founder and we just, say, you know, what's going on in the world that we can make a comment on or we can uh, deepen the conversation about. And then we find plays that we've always loved 
and seek to present them in New York. Um, and it's interesting that in New York City, we're really driven as an industry on new work. And so very few theater companies are like ours, where we're doing work that's already been published. Uh, and that presents quite a bit of um, tension in the community because reviewers and uh, people who, you know, reporters for theater are not used to companies like ours. And so they kind of, we are overlooked quite a bit. Um, mm. by the community. Uh, what, when people see our work, they are very excited about it because it's unlike anything that you would see on Broadway, even though the shows might be the same. It's much more intimate. You really feel like these are actual people dealing with these actual situations. We've been told many times that it feels like it's like a fly on the wall experience. That they're kind of um, spying on a real event. Um and I think uh, another thing that makes us very different is that, and this is leading to your question, by the way, about what is anxiety provoking about running a company. Um, we train our ensemble in a very specific actor-driven rehearsal process. Uh, and it requires much more than what we can do in rehearsals. So the base of our company is a group of people who work together year round. So we get together every Monday night and train. And all of the artists as well, they have a hand in the producing elements of the show. So um, people can choose in our company, do they want to have like the minimum level of producing support, which is like, okay, I'm going to help with box office. I'm going to help pass out postcards. I'm going to help with load in and strike. Or do they want more responsibility? Do they want to head up an outreach effort where they're reaching out to talk back guests, for example? Or uh, do they want to help in fundraising initiatives? Do they want to um, be responsible for some of our digital media? And so I mentor all of our ensemble in the business elements of producing theater so that Everyone in our group knows how to be a theater maker, and we're essentially um, we're essentially training the next generation of theater makers. Um, and how that becomes anxiety provoking um, is when you bring together a group of artists who are all there for different reasons. Um, there's a lot of people to satisfy and make happy. So uh, if I'm somebody who becomes socially anxious because I always worry about, um, am I making people happy? Is it enough? Will people like me? Am I going to do the wrong thing? And that's constantly spinning in my head. Um, uh, what results is a very caring and passionate and inclusive person who doesn't push the envelope far enough much of the time. So, because I'm so worried about going over, stepping over a line with somebody. Um, mm -hmm. So that creates a lot of anxiety for me. Um, and I'm working on it on a weekly basis <laughs> with my therapist. Um, but that's just one thing. Um, it's very stressful um, when there are things going on in the world that we need to respond to. Um, you know, one thing about our theater company is that is it is small and it's still on a um, kind of an industry 
level, it's considered to be a startup still because we're not at the off-Broadway level yet. It's what we're aiming for, but there are a lot of barriers to getting there, mostly financial, but there are other barriers as well. So um, the only people being paid in our theater company are the artists when they do a show. So they're paid not a living wage. It's not enough. So essentially, we consider everybody to be volunteers. They're not even employees. They're only receiving reimbursement stipends. Uh, we work with the union to uh, on the specific code called the Showcase Code here in New York that allows us to work with union actors. I'm union. Um, my co-founder is union. So this allows us to work and uh, essentially work under the auspices that we are producing our own work. So we get certain allowances in order to do that. Um, when you work with a whole host of volunteers, both on the board and the ensemble we work with, they're all different personalities and they all want to be worked with in a completely different way and they all want different things. And I'm essentially our HR department and so it's my responsibility to make sure everybody gets what they came for. And that is very anxiety provoking, but it's also very rewarding. So how do you manage the stress that comes along with being in a leadership position and being the HR person in your company? I think that um, it starts with communication uh, for us, at least. And um, so I think a lot of managing anything with people and relationships, it's about managing expectations. So what do people expect from you? And is that out in the open? Do we know what that is? And can we negotiate that if both parties don't agree or they see things differently? So we've learned and I've learned to be very, very clear about what we're able to offer and getting people's buy-in on what those things are that they want, how do they want to contribute, what do they want to get out of it. Uh, and that open communication makes it so much easier because then if something goes wrong, and it often does because we're all human, uh, we can refer back to the initial conversation. And I've done a lot of communications training as well. So anybody who's interested in leading a company, or leading an initiative, getting communications training is huge because you start to learn how to be clear with your communication and also understand where other people are coming from and then pivot based on what you're learning about those people. Uh, and I imagine you as a director, you have to do the same thing when you're leading people. Yes. You deal with a lot of different personalities and a lot of... Um, and, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this too. Um, when you're working with actors, everybody has a different background in their training yes. and there's some people are used to working in a very specific way. Some people just want you to tell them what to do. Others want to, to find it, you know, which I strongly encourage. Um, and it can be, it's an, it's an interesting juggling act trying to figure out how to make all those moving parts work together and, respect each individual's creative process. Exactly. And I think you, yeah. you, you're speaking to something that I find um, very challenging as a leader, um, but that is creating a safe space for um, conversation to be had during rehearsals or doing really anything and recognizing, particularly with actors, that 
we ask them, and I, being an actor myself, I'm in the same situation with them, that we're being asked to open up and go to vulnerable places, and then we're problem-solving at the same time. So then somebody is invariably going to yell or cry or get <laughs> frustrated, right? And, right? and making sure that our ensemble understands that that is completely okay. You can yell. Right. It's not ideal, but it happens. Right. And we're not going to freak out. Um, this is not the corporate world where there is a standard practice of behavior that someone has to abide by. Just kind of like, don't be a jerk. And that's pretty right. much the rule. But, you know, if you be need respectful. you know, yeah. people freak out, they freak out. And we just have to be a strong enough leader to keep the room calm so that there's a safe space for that communication. And that's really hard. And then doubly when you're dealing with volunteers who are not bound by their paycheck. Um, you know, when you, when you're bound by your paycheck, you at least have that thing. Well, I'm here, I'm making money. So I'm just going to kind of move forward and deal with this. Um, that presents other problems because maybe people won't talk about what's bothering them because they're afraid of losing their paycheck. Whereas in a volunteer situation, it's, right. we're all here for different reasons. And, uh, you know, so people might feel a little freer to speak, but, um, but as the person who's leading everything, I always want it to be a safe space. Um, you know, right now, um, I'm really, I'm almost doing a, um, ensemble member audit of people who have worked okay. with in the past to kind of look at my notes. Um, we do exit interviews with pretty much everybody who leaves, um, unless they don't want one. Um, just so we can understand what's happening and what might make them, is this just something we need to chalk up to, well, this isn't working out right now, or do we have things we can work on? Um, and looking at the struggle, um, that, that black people have been dealing with for centuries, right? We want to really examine ourselves as a theater company and make sure, um, you know, where have we been complicit? Because really I mean, any company that has white people will find that they're complicit in some way, even if they don't know it. And how do you keep that from happening in the future? So there's a lot of introspection right now, which is causing a lot of anxiety as someone who wants to be liked. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's multi-layered and, um, and so there are lots of opportunities for anxiety in producing for sure. Okay. Yeah. So what tools have you found helpful in dealing with your anxiety? Um, I think that um, part of it is communication so I, um, which I am not that good at, um, I'll be like super open and frank. Like I, after getting diagnosed in November of 2018, my long-term boyfriend and I had real difficulties, um, who by the way is, um, my co-founder of the theater company. We did not, we were not dating when we started the theater company, but then, Three years later, it became obvious we should just, you know, <laughs> just date, for God's sake. Um, but things were really difficult for us, and so we started going to couples therapy. And interestingly, the only time we ever talked about our relationship 
was in therapy uh, because we just would get busy with what was going on in the theater company, which we affectionately term our um, our toddler in the terrible twos that never gets out of the terrible twos. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's our whole life is around set around that we live together. So it's like it, we're just immersed in the theater company all the time and we never talked. Um, and so interestingly with, you know, during COVID now and the fact that we're together all the time, um, has actually been really great for us. So now, um, I have worked very hard to try to open myself up to talk about the things that I deal with. And we've made kind of a standing date. He's in therapy as well. And we just once or twice a week talk about what we discussed in therapy. We don't have to talk about everything, but just like what's something you learned this week or what's something you brought up that you want me to know. And mm -hmm. by opening up that conversation, it's made a really big difference in our, in my anxiety because I don't feel alone. Um, and in the anxiety about the relationship because we're openly communicating all the time. So, so those are, um, that's the first thing is communication and having someone to talk to. It does not matter who it is. It could be a therapist or a friend or a family member, just someone that you feel comfortable sharing with and then force yourself to do it because you won't want to. Um, I would say, I mean, it certainly worked for me to explore medication, but that's not for everybody. And I know that that has its own, um, that brings up other anxiety issues for people when they think about needing therapy, uh, well, therapy or uh, medication. Mm -hmm. I think also, um, whether you figure this out from a therapist or not, figuring out what your triggers are and then finding out how you want to go about addressing them. Mm -hmm. Um, so for some people, they need more self-care. They just need more alone time or they need more social time or they need that they need to do yoga every day because that's going to calm their mind or they need to be able to read or that whatever it is to be willing to explore, um, and improvise, uh, to see what might address the anxiety because mm -hmm. it's not, um, it's anxiety almost entirely is a fear of what's going to happen in the future. So it's not even real. It mm -hmm. might be based on stuff that happened in the past. And for most of us, it is, we imagine that something in the past is going to happen in the future. Um, but that's still not real. So starting to recognize our feelings as being feelings that are, um, that are valid and they're happening, but they're just feelings. It's not reality. Uh, ha at least helps me to calm myself down. And um, then I go and have a conversation about it. Right. Given your perspective, what advice would you have for artists who are anxious and frustrated during this time period? I'm with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, um, it's finding out, I think, and I think this is an important uh, quest to be on all the time, whether it's during COVID or not, but what is it about performing or being a part of the arts? If you're not performing, if you're a director, if you're a designer, stage manager, um, administrator, like what is it that really gets you excited about it? And then see 
where else you can utilize that skill set or that um, or find that passion. And you don't have to change forever. It's just a for now sort of thing. So it's not like, oh, I've got to stop being an actor forever. It's how mm-hmm. can I utilize that now so it doesn't die? Uh, there are a lot of classes that are still online for actors to be able to keep their chops up. Um, it's very scary because financially it's very difficult, but most teachers have uh, dropped their prices. So um, that I would say going back into training would be something um, for our theater company because there really is no possibility for performance at this time, uh, given our specific union status and our specific budget. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a much longer story of why we're kind of stymied in there. But um, we've instead, I've put my attention toward our education and outreach program, because part of what I love about producing is about providing something that's going to make a difference in the theater community um, and being able to uh, attend to my social justice needs and so I can do that through picking the right kinds of classes and bringing the right kinds of um, professionals to teach those classes, starting with our ensemble first, giving them a little bit of money for it makes me feel really great. Um, being able to have conversations and make a difference in the community that way is not enough, but it will do for now. So I think um, there's just a lot of soul searching that should happen. And I think also, um, one thing that's really helped me in my anxiety is to not think of it like we are um, trying to do the same thing in a different way. Mm-hmm. You really have to wipe the slate clean and say, what do I enjoy about acting and what medium will allow me to do it right now? As opposed to, well, we're going to take theater and make theater something else because it, theater is theater. It's not web series. It's not Zoom readings. It's not theater. It's something else and it has value, right? but it's not theater. Right. So the minute right. I let go of the idea of it being theater, oh, okay, what is it then? Oh, it's an mm-hmm. opportunity for me to re- read a play. It's an opportunity for me to share with an audience or whatever it is that happens to be important to the artist, you know? Right, right. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. You, you have your your outlook is is such an inspiration, and I'm so glad to know you. I feel the same way about you. Thank you for having me on and listening to me go on and on. I really appreciate it. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Erin Kronikin. For more information on Erin's work, including her blog, which you should definitely check out, head over to our website, anxietyandtheartist.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety in the Artist is produced by Groster Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.